It's time for Lawyers for Jesus, a show about the dynamic and exciting interaction of faith and the law. Featuring the attorneys from the law firm Malkin Baker in downtown Chicago. Malkin Baker is nationally known for defending freedom and for serving the people of faith. And now, Lawyers for Jesus. Hello, welcome to Lawyers for Jesus. I'm Rich Baker, an attorney and a partner with the law firm of Malkin Baker in Chicago. We are Christian attorneys who focus on serving the body of Christ with its legal needs. To learn more about us, go to maukbaker.com, that's M-A-U-C-K-B-A-K-E-R.com, or call at 312-726-1243. Why is religious liberty so disputed? And has it always been that way? Today I will be speaking with Brandon O'Brien, author of Demanding Liberty, an untold story of American religious freedom. Mr. O'Brien begins this book with a question. Religious liberty is one of the most contentious political issues of our time. How should people of faith engage with a public square in a pluralistic era? This book unveils the historic struggle of how religious liberty in the United States came to be following the efforts of a Baptist pastor, Isaac Backus, who strived to secure freedom of religion and conscience for all. Brandon, this is a fantastic topic. Uh, welcome to our show. Uh, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. I really think a lot about the issues that you're raising here and, and how do we today deal with uh, our religious faith and participate in a pluralistic culture. So it'll be interesting to see the insights historically that you're bringing out. Um, tell us a little bit about the book and how you came uh, to write this book. Sure. Um, so this book tells uh, sort of the story of a man named Isaac Backus from about his conversion um, around the time of the First Great Awakening in America and his death in 1806, um, which was just at the beginning of the Second Great Awakening in America. Um, and he was a Baptist pastor um, for most, most, all of his adult life and an advocate for religious liberty um, because he was pastoring a group of people who uh, were not protected under uh, the laws of New England, um, Baptist at the time. And uh, I discovered Bacchus while uh, studying Edward, uh, Jonathan Edwards and found that uh, Bacchus was actually very much influenced by uh, Jonathan Edwards' um, reformed evangelical theology. And so I kind of got into it first because Bacchus makes a theological argument for religious liberty, which is something that um, made him unique at the time and, and I think helpful for us today. So let's go back a second. The first Great Awakening, oh, if I go back in history and correct me if I'm wrong, was probably around the uh, 1760s before uh, – the War of Independence. Am I right on that, or, or give, straighten me out? The early seven, early seventeen forties. Yeah. Okay, even earlier than I thought, and it had a great effect on uh, this country at the time of the revolution, as my reading tells me. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, it did a, a couple of things that are important, I think, um, for the, this topic. One is that it helped to give. Um, colonists a sense of national identity. Um, b before the um, awakening, you had people in Virginia and 
Massachusetts and you know other places, and, and they kind of thought of themselves locally, but not together as Americans. And this um, this kind of uh, this revival swept the Eastern Seaboard and gave people a sense of uh, solidarity with each other because of their shared religious experience. It certainly wasn't everyone, but it did help to knit the colonies together um, as a as an American. Uh, sort of entity. And uh, that's the good news. The thing that was complicating is that it actually introduced a new level of religious pluralism in the colonies. Um, most people, the vast majority of people were still Christian, but whereas before they fell into a very small number of religious groups, uh, the Great Awakening, uh, because of its very democratic emphasis, uh, you know, people were preaching to women and to slaves and children and women and slaves all in some areas began preaching and leading churches um, because of the work that happened in the awakening. It, it introduced a lot of new denominations and a lot of movements and suddenly created the need to, to answer the question, how are we going to, how are we going to work together, live together uh, in light of this much more diverse religious scene that we have all of a sudden? Well, Taking that into account, then, um, so you're saying in, in a way that the colonies, in many ways, were becoming much more pluralistic, and that created new problems uh, for the question of religious freedom in, in the colonies. Um, tell us a little bit about Isaac Backus and how he fits into this uh, colonial situation. Great. So Backus became... Um a he was he was born into a a, a farming family it was fairly well to do um his family had been part of the founding family of Connecticut and uh and he was um not particularly religious himself but his mom became uh, born again during the 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 awakening um he followed her a few years later after hearing sermons and um and being part of Bible studies and things. And he immediately felt called into ministry, um, or pretty immediately felt called into ministry. Um, but he didn't have an education. Uh, and at the time in New England, in order to, to be kind of an approved, sanctioned pastor, you had to have the right education. You had to have gone to one of the seminaries. And then you had to be approved by a, a collection of the of existing ministers in the area and he didn't have the education to be appointed he w therefore wouldn't have the approval of those pastors and so he, f he kind of immediately found himself outside of the law of, i mean it sounds a little dramatic but you know he felt a, a an internal call from the holy spirit and suddenly was in a system where that wasn't enough he also had to have this approval and because that approval um had to come from people who were also influential in courts and, and other things that put him both as a religious minority and then in certain ways as a marginalized person um, socially, politically. You're listening to Lawyers for Jesus. I'm Rich Baker with the law firm of Malk and Baker. If you're just tuning in, make sure to visit MalkBaker.com to hear the rest of this interview. You can also subscribe to our Religious Liberty newsletter and follow us on Facebook and Twitter for legal updates with a biblical perspective. Today, we're speaking with Brandon O'Brien, author of Demanding Liberty, an untold story of American religious freedom. So he finds himself in this situation where he feels a call by the Holy Spirit uh, to preach, but he can't uh, 
get a license or do so within the regular system uh, in in the colony. I guess it's Connecticut. So what happens? Yeah, so he finds himself in a tricky spot because there had been some laws before the awakening about um, Quakers and Baptists, and there were special dispensations to exempt those groups from having to pay taxes to support the established religion in the in New England, which was the Congregationalists. But Bacchus had not yet become a Baptist formally, and he um, was still in all kind of discernible ways a Congregationalist, but he broke with his local church on some issues uh, about baptism and who's considered a church member and things. It had to do with, you know, should the church be made up only of converted believers or is it also people who are in the kind of a spiritual journey? And so he separated and that from his home church that made him first a separate kind of capital S it became a, a category and there were no legal protections for separates. So even though he was no longer attending the local uh, congregationalist church, he was required by law to pay taxes to support its pastor. Um, and he was technically breaking covenant of fellowship by not going to services and not attending communion and that sort of thing. So he found himself suddenly subject to paying taxes for a church he didn't attend and technically subject to church discipline for uh, from a congregation he didn't attend. And so he he got thrust into the questions about like about liberty of conscience um right from the beginning. Um does my local pastor have a right to tell me, you know, where I should worship and and uh, what I should believe, and then does the state government have a right to collect taxes to support one particular church in the area? Um, and so he didn't come at this as a philosopher or you know lawmaker first. He came at it from a existentially. He found himself in a tough spot and started trying to make sense of it. Um, taking a look at that, so what sense theologically did he make of this, and and what effect then? Did that have? Yeah. So he had a couple of, uh, the, there's a couple of complicated journeys going on for him. One is he's trying to figure out what he thinks about baptism. That's the key difference at the time, or a key difference between his congregationalist background, which baptized infants, and, and the older, you know, and the Baptist tradition, which only baptizes believers. He was trying to sort that out. And that's relevant because he had members in his church who thought both ways, and he wanted to extend liberty of conscience to them in his congregation by saying, let's figure out a way that those of us who adhere to believers baptism and those who believe to infant baptism can, um, can, you know, fellowship together in one place without violating each other's conscience. So he's, he's kind of having that argument. And then he's also trying to figure out the role of government versus the church and, and, a lot of Congregationalists are reading the Old Testament and the New Testament in a way that says whatever is true of Israel is also true of the church. And so if in Israel they collected taxes to support the temple, then in, the, you know, in New England we should collect taxes to support the local church. And he's trying to make sense of, is that the way we read the two Testaments together? Um, he's trying to make sense of what conversion means in light of a state church. So if I can't force a person to become a Christian... Um, that is the work of the Holy Spirit, then how can I force them to attend church or to pay for a, a particular, you know, congregation? And so he's he's kind of addressing a lot of these questions at one time. And um, the one that, uh, yeah, that hits him the most is, is a person free to make a religious decision? And if not, uh, then what is what are the implications of that for faith? 
Coming up, we will talk further with Brandon O'Brien, author of Demanding Liberty, an untold story of American religious freedom, about the foundation of religious liberty in our nation and what that means now. I'm Rich Baker, and this is Lawyers for Jesus. Sometimes, Jesus used the law to make a difference, and so must we. In his book, Jesus in the Courtroom, author and attorney John Mauck shows us how to engage our modern legal system for the good of the kingdom. Jesus in the Courtroom discusses the need for faith-filled lawyers in order to protect the church and what good can happen when we partner with Christian legal professionals. To order your copy of Jesus in the Courtroom, find it at Moody Publishers or go to JesusInTheCourtroom.com. Welcome back to Lawyers for Jesus. I'm Rich Baker, an attorney at Malkin Baker, a law firm based in Chicago, which serves churches, ministries, businesses, and individuals in their legal needs. If you have missed the first part of the show and want to listen online, go to maukbaker.com forward slash radio. Today, we're speaking with Brandon O'Brien, author of Demanding Liberty, an untold story of American religious freedom. And we ended our last a segment of the show with a rapid-fire listing of some of the theological issues that um, Mr. Bacchus or, or Preacher Bacchus was facing in the colonies uh, as he formed his religious views of religious freedom. So let's go back, uh, Brandon, and talk a little bit about that. So how did these uh, religious views and his separatist um, status affect really American history. I mean, that's where your book's going, I believe. So let's, how did it happen? Right. So um, Bacchus makes a journey over about a decade to um, moving from separatist to a Baptist. And um, it was really as a Baptist that he got a national platform um, to help fight, um, you know, sort of countrywide or, um, you, know, you know, across the colonies for religious liberty. And that um, is something that developed over a, a period of time, but it, w- it was happening mainly during the revolutionary period. And what Baptists across the colonies felt, especially in New England, was that um, our our colonies are together are fighting a war um, against a, an op- oppressive government. And one of the key issues that we have with that government is that we are being taxed without representation. And the Baptists felt that that's exactly what's happening on a spiritual level to Baptists, because we're required to pay taxes to support churches that we don't attend. And when we don't attend them, then we, you know, their property could be seized and sold to pay off their tax debt and various things. And so they, they thought, this is a great time. Like, surely while the whole country is talking about you know, um, taxation without representation, we can get everybody behind us in this cause. And um, so Bacchus, his first role was uh, as a chair of what they called the Grievance Committee, and his job was essentially to collect stories of persecution from Baptists and in, in, uh, across the, uh, the colonies, especially in New England, and collect them and present them at places like the First Continental Congress and trying to, to raise uh, awareness um, of the struggle of the Baptists and other religious minorities um, to these men of power and to try to get the attention. And uh, the short and long of it is those those uh, revolutionary period folks really didn't 
care all that much. They they thought that there was already religious liberty in the colonies and that it was redundant to, to say anything more about it. Um, and so Bacchus had the to prove that even though there were some laws on the books, those laws either were not enforced or they were enforced in such a way that they still disadvantaged uh, Baptists and Quakers and, and others. Um, and so uh, the Baptists uh, and Bacchus among them drafted a Bill of Rights for the Constitution that they uh, and, and, and demanded, uh, you know, the ratification that was required by the states, a lot of the Baptists said, we're not going to ratify unless there's a Bill of Rights that protects religious liberty. Uh, and so it was Bacchus as a representative of the Baptists, but Baptists as a kind of as a block that really shaped the language and made sure that we had um, specific uh, protection for religious liberty, you know, encoded in our founding documents. So let's talk about that. <clears throat> founding documents, you mean the, the U.S. Constitution? And I would assume right, you're yeah. talking Bill of Rights, and you're really talking First Amendment there. So mm -hmm. that's right. How did Bacchus's influence influence the First Amendment? Yeah, so there was a lot of talking um, among Baptists from, especially between Virginia. So Bacchus um, was very connected with Baptists and other. Um, uh, colonies. There was a guy named John Leland who was in Virginia, who was uh, very much uh, politically active and um, was, uh, you know, ran for office and other things, and had the support of Baptists. And um, so there were a lot of efforts uh, among Baptists to to try to codify language that the Baptists were comfortable with, um, and propose that to um, different, uh, you know, in different venues to, for approval and uh, in those in the Bill of Rights. And um, there, the direct connection to Bacchus gets a little fuzzy. He's he's identified as a representative for the ratification groups and those kinds of things. So he's in the room. He's uh, he's voting for documents that he helped to draft and those kinds of things. He he obviously didn't have the authority to, you know, to, to make these things happen on his own. But he worked really as I think um, a grassroots campaigner to get Baptists who were so focused on local autonomy of congregations uh, that they were very nervous about partnering even with other Baptist churches because they didn't want to become, you know, controlled by a, a big blanket organization. A larger group. Yeah. A larger group, exactly. So they didn't want to become Presbyterian, you know, essentially. And so he had to figure out how to rally them, how to get them voluntarily to support uh, as a block of loosely affiliated churches and uh, networks, you know, how to support the kind of uh, candidates and the kind of documentation that were necessary to make sure um, that they had the protections that they wanted. And uh, the irony, of course, is we got the, I mean, the First Amendment um, theoretically protects religious liberty, but when Bacchus died in 1806, there were still laws in the books in Massachusetts that required, you know, there was still an established church and there were still taxes going to that established church. So the things didn't, they didn't change overnight, um, but he got he made sure that the right language was in the right documents, um, he and the Baptists together, uh, so that those could eventually kind of work through the legal system. You're listening to Lawyers for Jesus. I'm Rich Baker of Malkin Baker, and we're talking with Brandon O'Brien, author of Demanding Liberty, an untold story of religious freedom. Uh, Brandon, let's, let's go on with this. So obviously, um, we have the, the uh, letter that Jefferson wrote uh, to the Danforth Baptists. And in that letter, 
he coined the phrase uh, separation of uh, church and state. How does that work in terms of what Bacchus had been arguing for? Yeah, I, I believe it is in that document um, that he, used, he He talks about a wall of separation between church and state. And right. um, it's interesting because there's that, that denotes a pretty clear boundary <laughs> that can't ever be crossed, you know. Um, Bacchus advocated uh, for what he called a sweet harmony between church and state, which is that no one should have to uh, pass a religious test, right? They don't have to be a member of a certain religion or de- or denomination in order to get public office uh, but there should but the government should be happy to pay for chaplains to serve in the military or something like that so that would be one of those kinds of um, that's a sweet harmony right like the two operate in their totally separate spheres but their their operations should mutually benefit one another and the language of a wall of separation makes it sound like they just don't interact at all um, and so uh, but the Baptists were divided John Leland who I mentioned before said that if the, you know if the Baptists want a chaplain in the army they ought to pay for it and the government shouldn't support uh, chaplains because that's prioritizing religion and so um, there were lots of opinions uh, and I think that we're still today it's probably oversimplifies things, but I think that there are good many Americans who think that we should be trying to uh, accomplish that wall of separation where those two spheres do not intermingle at all. And there are many others who they wouldn't use the phrase, but they would probably agree with Bacchus about the sweet harmony of, uh, of church and state where they're separate, um, but they work together as a mutual benefit to one another and to the broader society. Um, I think that's a issue that we have still not yet resolved as a as a citizenry. <laughs> We're still working that one out. Well, it's interesting you mention that because uh, we do a lot of religious freedom uh, cases here at Mauk and Baker, and this issue is coming up um, every year before the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, the mm-hmm. The question of neutrality is is often raised. Um, I mm-hmm. think you know you have the the recent cases like. Um, the playground in Missouri, and they wanted mm-hmm. uh, to be able to be included in in uh, state funding for their playground materials, and and uh, they were excluded. And the uh, under Missouri law, recently this U.S. Supreme Court said, no, you cannot discriminate against religious groups uh, simply mm-hmm. because they're religious. Um, so you have this issue in play at all times uh, with funding, but now we're seeing it going even beyond where uh, certainly those who look for separation would argue um, complete separation and actually silence in the public square of religious um, identity. And so it, mm-hmm. it's an ongoing fight, and this separation has become a very, very serious thing where it's really come to the place where government is to silence um, religious groups in any public form because such a uh, presence would be, um, as they would say, violating separation of church and state. Brandon, there are so many more topics uh, to get into here, and we don't have any more time. Thank you for speaking with us today. Where can people get a hold of your book? Sure. The best place to go is uh, my website, which is brandonjobrien.com. Uh, that's B R A N D O N the letter J-O-B-R-I-E-N dot com. And that has summaries of 
all the books and where you can buy them and some sample chapters and that sort of thing uh, and, and ways to contact me. So that's a good place to start. I'm hoping to have you back on the show. There's so many more topics. If you have a legal need or a question and want the perspective of a local Christian attorney, contact us at Malkin Baker. You can reach us at 312-726-1243 or at maukbaker.com. That's M-A-U-C-K-B-A-K-E-R.com. Visit our website and subscribe to our Religious Liberty newsletter with legal updates or call us and mention Lawyers for Jesus for a free consultation. Thanks for listening. I'm Rich Baker, attorney at Mauk and Baker, and this is Lawyers for Jesus. Somebody, yes, indeed, you're gonna have to serve somebody.